I uh, have heard this for years, and I know you have too. You know, um, why is it that the church doesn't react and respond, you know, to a sermon or to a song the way that uh, people do at a sporting event? You ever heard that? Like, if you're watching the uh, Green Bay Packers play the Chicago Bears, whichever side you're on, I know there's at least one person who's on the Green Bay Packers side, Eric, and then your team, you know, scores a touchdown or wins the game and everybody's, you know, cheering and, and all that. Um, there's a reason why the church doesn't respond on a regular basis to what we're talking about, what we're doing, what our worship, like a, a football game. And the reason why is because we know that we win all the time. If you knew that your team was inevitably going to win every single time, you wouldn't have as much of a reaction to every score, every time they make a touchdown, every time they win a game, because you're, you're in that like tug of war, like, I don't know if they're going to pull it out, but they did, woo! We know we're going to win. Sometimes you get reminded of that in a song, and you're like, ah, this is exactly what I needed right now. But I don't get offended that we're not cheering and doing the wave through the congregation every week, because guess what? If you know that you're going to win, you kind of sit back and you're like, I knew that, and it's okay. But in the meantime, guess what? We got a lot of battles to go through. <laughs> we win the war, but we got a lot of struggles and issues that we're dealing with on a regular, ongoing basis. And so um, as we look at the, the final several chapters of Acts, we're going to see where Paul um, goes through a lot of trials, okay? This is a little bit of, of uh, a pun, uh, more trials, because he goes through a lot of difficulties, dangers, um, and troubles in his life over these last several chapters, but he's also on trial legally five different times. They're not all necessarily legal proceedings, but they're, they're all uh, occasions, five different times he's in front of the Jewish people, uh, giving his testimony. He's in front of the Jewish religious leaders giving his testimony. He's in front of two different governors and a king. And that's all before he goes to Rome to present his case before Emperor Nero. Okay, He's going to be on trial after trial after trial, presenting the gospel, presenting his testimony. And in the meantime, he's going to go through trial after trial after trial in terms of difficulty and struggles and problems and issues. And yet... What we're going to do, we're going to walk through all those things quickly, as quickly as we can, and then we're going to conclude with a couple of, of questions. Um, why? Why does Paul go through all that, and how does he understand it? Why does he go through it? How does he understand it? Answer those two questions, and we'll be out of here in no time. Just eight chapters of Acts, and we're done, and a few other passages and some other places, no problem. All right, that's what we're doing. I'm going to ask you to uh, stand with me as we read uh, from Acts chapter 21, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 27, um, and I'm going to just really encourage you, if you uh, uh, don't have a Bible, to go, go ahead and grab one. You're going to want one as we walk through eight chapters together. I'm going to be highlighting different sections, different different things, um, but we're going to start here in Acts 21 in verse seven, uh, 27. 
says, uh, when the seven days were almost completed, okay, what that means, the seven days, is that Paul had gotten to Jerusalem. He's been on his third missionary journey. He made his way to Jerusalem from, uh, basically from Greece and through Asia, and now he's back to Jerusalem. Um, when he got there, there was an issue that the Jewish Christians uh, were mad at Paul because they thought that he was trying to convince Jewish Christians not to be Jewish anymore. The church leaders um, said, Paul, in order to kind of smooth this out with all these people, why don't you do a religious uh, ceremony, a Jewish religious ceremony? Paul has the freedom to do a religious Jewish ceremony. That's okay. It doesn't save him, doesn't, doesn't mean anything necessarily, but he's willing to do it because he is Jewish. Um, it doesn't work. It's a man-made solution to a spiritual problem. So after seven days, he, he goes through this, uh, completing this vow. Uh, here's what happens. The Jews from Asia, okay, Asia, when you read that, this, this is the region or the area of Ephesus. It's where he basically has just come from. He spent a couple years there. Uh, they saw him in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the Jewish people, and the law in this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed, supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Uh, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Here's this guy getting beat up by a mob. They arrested him, okay, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired, uh, the tribune, he inquired who he was, what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Paul. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that takes all of these things, these uh, stories, these occasions, these issues that Paul faces and um, his understanding of them and uh, his, his reflection on them in other books of the Bible to help us to understand what we're going through. And we may not go through the things that Paul goes through. We may not get beaten up by a crowd um, or have to stand before the emperor. But, uh, Lord, we have trials and issues and struggles and pain and difficulties that we face. And we're trying to wrap our minds around it, God. Sometimes we, we struggle to make sense of this life and, and why it's going the way it's going and how to, how to manage and how to be a good witness in the, in the midst of it. Um, but, Lord, we thank you that when the, the darkness seems to be uh, getting so dark, Lord, that your people shine that much brighter, that holding on to you and, and reflecting and 
and uh, imitating Christ and, and uh, sharing our faith and not wavering, uh, not compromising, uh, but holding forth the, the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, begins to be such a bright uh, light, Lord, in a dark world. And it shines even brighter in our own lives, I, I believe, and I, I know this, Lord, when the pain is overwhelming and the struggles are, are encroaching, um, to hold on to you is, is such an amazing thing to lift up before people. They see something that they can't make sense of. It shouldn't be that way. There shouldn't be this much peace. Um, but there is, and it's because of your Holy Spirit and the faith that we have that we are victorious in Christ. We have more to live for, more to hope for than anything this world can offer, and we thank you for that. So help us, Lord, to shine that bright light in a dark world in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I don't know if you caught it. I was trying to articulate the, uh, the action words, the verbs here that were um, speaking to what Paul was going through. Okay, he's come from Ephesus. So that was where he spent a couple of years. He, there's such a, a response to the gospel that the pagan um, people who were making idols were fearful that they were going to lose their business, right? They, they actually cause a riot. Paul seems to find himself in the middle of riots on a regular basis. They cause a riot. Paul leaves. He goes and he finishes his missionary journey. Then he comes back to Jerusalem. And right away, those people... So this has only been six months, okay, uh, maybe a year since he was in Ephesus. Those people, okay, not the same pagans, but the Jewish people in Ephesus and around Ephesus who saw Paul, saw his ministry, saw what he was doing, how he was teaching, and they were not convinced. They were not converted, okay. They came to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival called uh, Pentecost, right. Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, so you have mobs of people all over the world gathering to Jerusalem. Some of them come from Ephesus, where Paul just was. They saw Paul in the temple, and they said, here's the guy who is teaching everyone everywhere not to follow Jewish customs, which is not what Paul was doing, okay? He's proclaiming the Messiah to everyone all over the world, but they're twisting that message in order to get people to hate Paul. Now, Paul is there in the temple, um, going about his normal business, and you have mobs of people, okay, crowds and crowds of people, who hear this is an enemy of the Jewish people. And they don't think, they don't know what's going on. All they hear is, here's somebody we hate, let's beat them up. And they're, this happens all the time, okay? I don't know if, you've probably never been part of this, but uh, it's something called group think, okay? Group think is when uh, people lose their personal identity to a degree, but not necessarily the identity as much as their sense of responsibility. They get involved in a movement, and they don't feel like they are going to be uh, held accountable for an action that a group is taking. So they don't know what's going on. All they see is there's something happening. This guy's the, the culprit. Let's beat him up. And so you have hundreds, perhaps 
thousands, okay, but hundreds of people gathered around beating up Paul. Their intention is to kill him, okay? It says in verse 31, seeking to kill him. They are beating on Paul. There is such violence in the crowd that they actually, when they do come, the soldiers, they have to carry Paul out and guard him because people are just continually swinging and kicking and biting and scratching and doing everything, everything they can to take Paul's life. How long this goes on, we don't really know. Um, the the uh, army barracks is really close to the temple area. It's right adjacent to it. It actually is connected to it. So they're on their tower. They're looking down. They see this, this whole you know, thing, uh, hullabaloo, you might call it, uh, going on. And they run down there. And uh, it might take them, I'm guessing, between five and ten minutes between the time that they see it they can gather their forces and run down there and try to do something, get through the crowd and get to the middle of this thing, okay? If you were being beaten up, would five or ten minutes seem like a long time, okay? One minute would seem like a long time. One second would seem like a long time. So he's being punched, kicked, everything else, stomped on, trampled, and um, I mean, I just can't even imagine the what he's going through. I'm sure he's curled up into a ball. He's trying to keep himself protected. They finally come in and they take him away. And here's what happens. How he didn't like die is really a miracle. It says that uh, they, they begin to question him uh, about who he is. They don't know. The, the guards, the, the military guys, they don't know who he is, what's going on. They think that he is a revolutionary. Okay, they think that he is somebody who's trying to gather a crowd of people to basically overthrow Rome. And so they're questioning him. He starts to speak to them in Greek because he knows Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, uh, who knows how many other languages. Um, and he begins to talk to them. And he says, I'm not that Egyptian uh, rebel. That's not who I am. And they say, well, who are you? And he says, uh, you know, I'm just a, a simple guy trying to, you know, uh, tell people about Jesus. And so they let him talk to the crowd of people that was just trying to kill him. Because remember, they don't know why they were trying to kill him. A few people knew, but most of them had no clue. And so he begins to talk to them in Hebrew, and they begin to listen. Like, oh, he's speaking our, our heart language. Maybe he you know, has something to say. So he begins in chapter 22, uh, telling his testimony. He walks through um, how he was persecuting the church. And this is like... 20 plus years removed, okay? When he was in Jerusalem the first time um, and all that, and he got saved, and that was a long time ago. These people don't know who Paul is. They probably haven't ever heard of Paul. He's been gone. He's been on the mission field. He's been out of the country. And 20 some years later, he comes back. So these people are like catching up on Paul's story. He's telling them about his conversion that he, on the road to Damascus, uh, I encountered Jesus. It changed my life. They're all fine with that story. They have no problems with Jesus being uh, the resurrected Lord. They have no problems with him being the Messiah. They go through. They're listening to all of this. And finally, in verse uh, 21, um, Paul is just beginning to get warmed up in his, his uh, testimony. He says, go. This is what Jesus says to Paul. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Okay, and, and what's happening right there in Paul's testimony is that this is like three years after Paul has been converted. 
Uh, he spent his time in the desert or in Damascus in the Arabian desert with Jesus. He's heard the gospel. He's been kind of confirmed in all the, the stories in the life of Christ by Christ, which is a very interesting uh, little fact that, that Paul says, I learned the gospel from Jesus. I didn't learn it from any human being. Jesus himself revealed it to me, spoke it to me, told it to me, okay? And so he comes back to Jerusalem. He spends a little bit of time with Peter, a couple of weeks. They send him back to Tarsus, where he is from, because Paul is going to get himself killed in Jerusalem. They know that. Everywhere Paul goes, people are looking to kill him. So Paul gets a message from Jesus, go, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And then this is what happens. Verse 22, up to this word, okay, the crowds, they were listening to him, but then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow. I don't know if they said it that way. Away with him. Rid him, rid the earth of him, for he should not be allowed to live. Like he, and here's what's going on. Culturally, uh, historically, what's going on? This is like late 50s, okay, the first century, late 50s. Um, in A.D. 70, anybody know what a pivotal year that was for the Jewish people? In A.D. 70, the Romans and the Jewish people had been at war and in such conflict for so long that at that point, what the Romans did was they came into Jerusalem. They demolished the temple to its foundation. Jesus had prophesied. He said, they, they will not let one stone be left on another in this, this huge temple complex. It took 45 years to build. The Romans are going to destroy it, dismantle it down to its foundations. Um, they demolished Jerusalem. They killed thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish people they, they slaughtered. Okay, This is like a decade before that. And the, the aggravation and the violence and the, the revolts and the tension between the Jews and the, the Romans was so fierce that the Romans were really afraid that the Jewish people were going to revolt as a whole. And the Jewish people were furious at the, uh, the Roman uh, occupation. They're, they cannot stand the fact that as a nation, they've been militarily occupied for so long and they're getting fed up and they're ready to, to do something about it, okay? Paul comes in and in their minds, this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, we know that he's saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. According to the Old Testament prophecy, he is the person that's gonna come and save people from their sins. The Jewish people don't necessarily have a huge problem with that, but they think that Paul is saying, stop being Jewish, let's be Gentiles, and let's follow Jesus as our Messiah and put away all the Jewish heritage and Jewish structure and Jewish religion and all those trappings of the Old Testament. Basically, they thought Paul was trying to destroy the Old Testament scripture. And he becomes the person that they're going to focus all their attention on to try to kill, remove, destroy, because that's a pretty big deal to them. Now, the reality is, Paul's not saying that at all. Paul's not saying that the Jewish people shouldn't be Christian, or shouldn't be Jewish. He's saying that Christian people should follow Jesus as the Messiah, and that you don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. We still believe that, amen? That we understand that the Jewish people need to and should retain their Jewish heritage. That's okay. It's not going to save them, but it is part of their ethnic and, and spiritual identity, they can retain that, follow Jesus as their Messiah, as a Gentile person. Gentile just means that I'm not Jewish. 
I don't need to go and become Jewish, that I can follow Jesus as my Savior and Lord outside of or beyond the law because of grace. Okay, I think you got that. One person got it. Everybody else, raise your hand if you got it. All right, we got it. Raise your hand if you didn't get it. You want me to go into much greater detail. Okay, I knew that wouldn't happen. All right, so what's happening here is that they're ready to kill him, and, and they've already proven they're ready to kill him. So the Roman soldiers still don't know what's going on because Paul just gave his testimony in Hebrew, and the Romans primarily don't speak Hebrew. So they didn't hear the content of what Paul was talking about in his testimony. All they saw was he said something, and all these people go into this furious you know, reaction. And so what they're going to try to do is take Paul and beat the truth out of him. Makes sense, right? You couldn't just ask him what he said. So we're going to beat you up until you tell us what really is going on. And Paul says, hey, um, is it lawful for you to uh, beat a Roman citizen without a trial? And they <laughs> take a step back because um, Paul had rights as a Roman citizen. In fact, the, the main guy comes in and he says, you know, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. How, what, how about you? How did you afford your citizenship? And Paul says, I was born Roman. And he just kind of gasps like, oh, what have we done? We can't touch this guy. He has rights as a Roman citizen that they know they can't touch him or they will be in trouble. So what they do instead of beating him up again, I mean, I'm sure he's already bloody and beaten and everything else, uh, they take him before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling religious council. And he's going to go on trial before them. I'm not going to go into everything that he says to them. Um, it is interesting that... I can't do it. Okay. So he goes into this uh, message where he just says, you know, I, he, Paul has a knack for causing people to um, be angry. And so he says... Uh, I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee, and uh, I believe in the resurrection. And what happens is that the, the Sanhedrin is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees who hate each other. Okay? They hate each other. They hate each other's theology. They hate each other's politics. They, they can't stand each other. And so when Paul throws that in there, it's a catalyst for them to just erupt and to focus their energy on, on hating each other. But guess what? Paul's in the middle of that. And so here's what it says. In uh, verse 10, it says, when the dissension became violent, okay, so in this church setting, basically, um, the violence gets so out of hand that the tribune, the Roman soldier, has to come in, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, um, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me, Jesus, in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So here's what Paul knows at this point. He is imprisoned, um, and that imprisonment is going to lead him eventually to Rome. He doesn't know how he's going to get there. He doesn't know the process. He doesn't know the, the in-between steps. He just knows that Jesus has revealed to him he will go to Rome, and that's his whole focus. I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to preach the gospel to Nero. Somehow, some way, God's going to make a way for that. Uh, and so what happens next 
is that uh, there's a plot to kill Paul. So Paul's still in Jerusalem. They have him in jail. And these people, uh, some guys, say that we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. So there's a conspiracy to kill Paul. It gets discovered, and Paul's nephew hears about it somehow. He takes that message to the soldiers. The soldiers say, we can't let this happen. And they take Paul by dark of night okay, to Caesarea. Caesarea up north, it's Caesarea Maritima. There's a couple of Caesareas uh, in Israel. One is Caesarea Philippi. It's where Jesus says, uh, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say the prophet, some say Jeremiah, some say um, the uh, Elijah, some people say you are um, the, the Messiah, some people say, you know, this and that, whatever. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And he says, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, that's Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Maritima um, is where Herod had a palace. It's where Pilate uh, spent some time as a governor. And it's where Paul is going to now go before uh, Festus and Felix and King Agrippa. And he's going to share his testimony before these rulers. Um, but in the meantime, what's going to happen here is that he's going to escape people trying to take his life. So the first thing that he does is that uh, he goes before Felix the governor. And he shares his message with Felix, spends some time there. In fact, in, uh, at 24, verse 40, or 27, 24, 27, says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So here's Paul. He's been um, in prison for two years already at this point. And he's not really guilty of anything other than that people just hate his guts. He's shared his testimony. He's shared the gospel with, with Felix. Um, for these last two years, he would bring him in and talk to him, have conversations with him. And over that time, uh, Felix apparently doesn't become a believer. Uh, but because of the political situation between the Jews and the Romans, he says, I'm going to leave Paul in prison um, to just do the Jewish people a favor. In order for them to like me a little bit, I'm going to just do this really immoral thing. I'm going to keep Paul in prison. Um, it's, it's interesting, Felix and Festus, I always get those two guys mixed up. Anybody else ever get those out of order? Nobody? How many Felixes and Festuses do we have? Why don't we name our kids Felix and Festus? Is anybody having a little boy coming up soon? Anybody pregnant? I'm just giving you... John, you're going to have a little boy? Okay, I got a couple names for you. <laughs> Felix or Festus, both great names. Um, the only Festus I've ever heard of was the, the character from Gunsmoke. He wasn't super attractive, so maybe, maybe that's why people don't name their kids Festus. But, okay, these two rulers, it says again um, in chapter 25, verse 9, Festus now, wishing to do the Jewish people a favor, uh, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be there tried on these charges before me? Why is that a favor to the Jewish people? Because there's another plot, another conspiracy to kill Paul. And Festus is going to kind of go along with it. Well, let's just send him back there because if we can kind of 
keep the Jewish people from being really, really mad. Maybe we can kind of settle this tension that we have in the region. Um, and Paul says, um, you know, I'm not unwilling to die. I, if, if I'm supposed to die, I'll, I'll gladly give my life for the Lord. But they have no right to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. Festus, verse 12, says, when he had conferred with his council, and he answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And so Paul begins this process of moving towards Rome. Now, he's going to go before Agrippa. Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, who is the one who, is, uh, who built Caesarea. He, he's the one who built uh, the temple. He built uh, a lot of fantastic structures. He was uh, an amazing king. Um, he, was, he was a horrible king, but he was an amazing king. He's the one who was in uh, ruling when Jesus was born and tried to have him killed by killing all the kids in Bethlehem that were two years old, or the baby boys who were two years old and younger. Okay, that's Herod. His grandson, Agrippa, um, is now the one who still has a little bit of power. Uh, he's more of a figurehead, but he comes to greet and to uh, schmooze you know, the governor in Caesarea, and so they're kind of bored, I think. There, there's not a lot going on in Caesarea, apparently, this weekend. Uh, all the movies they've already seen. And so they say, hey, why don't we get Paul and see what he has to say? He's kind of an interesting figure. Maybe he'll say something interesting. So Agrippa's like, yeah, let's listen to Paul. Paul tells uh, Agrippa his conversion story, his testimony. And at the end of chapter 26, okay, after he's told him everything about the gospel, this is what they say. This is verse 31. This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay. I just want you to get a picture for what's really happening here. Paul has been beaten severely once, probably pretty badly a second time by the Sanhedrin. There's been two more conspiracies on his life to try to kill him. He's been unjustly imprisoned for over two years. At the conclusion of that, okay, they, they say he's innocent. He doesn't deserve death. He doesn't even deserve to be in prison, but he appealed to Caesar, so we got to send him to Caesar. We, this legal process is now going. The ball's rolling. We can't stop it. He has to go. Now, unfortunately, the, the reason why is because uh, Festus, right, he says, I want to give you over to be killed by the Jewish people, and Paul's only option is to appeal to Caesar. But this is all part of God's plan to get Paul to Rome. You, know, you see what's all these different pieces that are just falling together in order for Paul to go to Rome? There's a lot going on here, though, that why... Does he have to suffer so much? I mean, I just kind of wonder a little bit about that, and this is the question that we're going to keep asking. Why does it have to be so painful? And then, it's not done yet. Chapters 27, 28, um, you read the story of his journey to Rome, and he's going to be on a boat for like six months trying to get there, and in the midst of that, there's this storm for two weeks, okay? There it's raging. They can't control the boat. They're, they don't know what's going to happen. They can't 
figure out their direction. It's just they're not eating. They've been two weeks without food and, and constant stress and anxiety that they're, they're not going to make it. Okay, anybody feel just even a little bit of that yesterday when the, the tornadoes came through? Nobody. At 8 o'clock, people were the same way. I was like, yeah, I don't really. You're on your deck watching to see if you can see a tornado, right? This is what Midwesterners do. I've never seen one. There's one in the area. Where's it at? I'm going to go see if I can find it. Anyway, you're on a boat. It's raging. It's rocking, and, and you're stressed out. That was what was going on. Natural disaster hits Paul, and the whole thing is that eventually they come to a place where the boat crashes. Okay, It's torn to pieces. They escape with their lives. They swim to shore. Paul gets to shore. There have been wet and miserable and cold and starving for weeks. And then they throw a little wood on the fire and a snake jumps out and bites Paul on the hand. Paul just shakes it off into the fire. They're wondering like how wicked and evil this guy must be that he's gone through all of this just to be killed by a snake. And he doesn't die. He doesn't even get sick. And now he begins to go around and heal people. Okay, all these things are happening, and the question is, why? Why so much pain and suffering? In chapter 28, verse 30, it says he lived in Rome for two whole years. Okay, he's still in prison. He's still on house arrest at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's what's happened is that Paul has suffered over and over and over and over again. And what I just shared with you and read and recounted isn't even half of uh, the, the kind of pain and suffering he went through. Go back to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and Paul gives an account up until that point of everything that he'd been through um, in his life. Okay, so... What I just shared with you happens after he wrote 2 Corinthians. He wrote 2 Corinthians from Ephesus on his third missionary journey. So he, after he wrote 2 Corinthians, he went all the way into Greece, continued to share the gospel, came back, went to Jerusalem, and all these things that we just talked about happened later. <coughs> so here's what it says. He's, he's trying to give an argument for why suffering is not a reason to de discount him as a, an apostle. Okay, this is his argument. He's, he's saying this is a foolish argument. I don't like to make this argument, but you're questioning my credentials as an apostle. So he gives this argument. He says in verse uh, 23, are they, talking about Peter and James and John, those guys, these other uh, apostles, are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm a better one. Now that's a strong statement, but He's just talking about the validation of his life, okay, the things that are going on in his life. Um, I am talking like a madman. He's, he doesn't want to give this argument. Okay, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings. He's, we just saw he was beaten severely two times. He says before that happened, he's been already beaten countless times. How many is that? More than he can count. Okay, he's lost track. Probably too many hits to the head. Okay, C 
countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Okay, the, the Jewish people had a law, they had a rule that you could not um, hit somebody with a, a flog them more than 40 times because then that would cause them to be shamed. Now I think <laughs> like 40 times is probably shameful enough, but so they would actually only flog you 39 times so they didn't break the rule. Five times he was flogged, um, three times beaten with rods, once he was stoned, three times shipwrecked. We don't have any real account of the three previous shipwrecks that he was in during his travels. We don't, Luke doesn't talk about that in the book of Acts. We get the one that he experienced later, but we don't have those three. He spent a night and a day adrift in the sea. Frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, at sea, false brothers, in toil, hardship, though uh, through many a sleepless night and hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there's this daily pressure on my life, the anxiety for all the churches. So taking all the physical things, and he still has this heartbreaking pressure to plant churches and make sure they're healthy and don't have false teaching and are led well and all those. And you just, this is all before everything we just talked about in Acts 21 through 28. You pause right here and say, Paul, um, do you realize that everything that you've been through, like, it's going to get worse? you imagine, like, trying to have that conversation with Paul? He would say, it's not possible. What do you mean it's going to get worse? There's, there's no way. Look at everything I've already been through. How could it get worse? And you say, well, just, just read the rest of Acts. And you can see it's, it's just going to get more and more. And just, it doesn't stop. It continues on. And I just thought about this issue of why is that? Why would one person have all this pain and trouble in their life? And one of the things that, that we saw when Paul was converted, when he came to know Christ, was that Jesus said, I will show him, you, you remember this passage? How much he must suffer for my name. It's been prophesied. And it's not that necessarily, okay, that Jesus is planning to bring all this into Paul's life to really beat him up. But he sees it. He knows this is what's going to happen. Um, and he shows Paul, tells Paul, or at least reveals it, that uh, he's going to go through a lot of pain and suffering in his life. But he still doesn't answer the question, why? And here's the reason why. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a strange thing. But Paul in 2 Corinthians, talks about this issue. That he had, we just read all the, uh, all the accounting of all the pain and suffering he'd been through and all the things that he's going to go through. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as an explanation for why he suffers the way that he does in his life. You're going to love this. You ready? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says this. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Paul has had the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on him. He has had 
the opportunity to see churches grow, people come to Christ, and in Revelations, he's been, what he says, he's been to heaven and seen things. He doesn't even know if he was in the body or not. Seen things he can't even talk to us about. But he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says it twice. Why? The suffering. Now, all the things that he went through in his life, on top of that, he also has a spiritual attack that he seems to go through in his life that God does not take away. He says, I prayed three times, God, would you please take this away? I've, I've had enough of everything else. Would you please take this away? And Jesus' response, he had pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me for the insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. He's been through all of it. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And here's a couple of conclusions to that. First of all, Paul specifically had a pride problem. Okay? We all have unique temptations, things that are our particular um, problem. And it's not pride for everybody, okay? It's not. Some people, um, it may be uh, the language that comes out of your mouth. Some people, it's an addictive personality or addictive desire for drugs or alcohol. Some people, it's a lust issue. Some people, it's uh, a, a greed. Some people, it's abusiveness. Some people, it's, you know, it's just these different things that you personally are kind of have a weakness for, okay? Paul's weakness was pride. And he knew that, God knew that, and the solution was, in order to keep Paul humble, was to allow Paul to continue to go through pain and hardship. That was something that God allowed in Paul's life to keep him completely dependent on God. And he, Paul knew it, and he could actually say, I I'm going to rejoice in this because... Um, I'm close to the Lord. And for whatever reason, and this is what doesn't totally make sense to me, with all his knowledge, with all his spiritual power, with the Holy Spirit, with his great strength of, of character and everything else, somehow, for whatever reason, he could not self-regulate this pride issue. You think that you have a lot of um, willpower? Like, you should be able to get over this sin or that issue or this problem yourself. Here's Apostle Paul. He's got as much knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and spiritual fullness that anybody in the world has ever had besides Jesus. And he cannot self-regulate that issue in his life. God has to help him with it. Okay? I don't know if you're catching the issue here, but the, the issue for you and me is that I cannot get caught up in my own sense that I should be able to handle everything. There are things that God is going to allow into my life in order to regulate the things that I can't control. The, the sin issues that I can't 
seem to get a grasp on. Some of that is you need a community of people around you to help you to, to see, to understand, to grow, to mature, to keep you accountable, to show you a weakness, to reveal something that's in your life that maybe you don't see. That's what the church is about. Like, it's not just about coming to a worship service and singing songs. It's about having connections with people who can see you for who you are. That's why there's such a tragedy in what happened with the pandemic for a lot of churches that, and I take some responsibility in this too, but we, we made it normal for people to go to church online. Okay? And if that's the only way you can go to church, then then do it that way. But that's not what the church is. Okay, the church is the gathering together of people because we need to look each other in the eye and to know the things that are going wrong and to help each other when we're weak and to be able to be honest about that, love each other in that, but also correct each other in the, the issues that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. There are things that I need from you to help me to understand my weaknesses. And it's not comfortable. That's why... The, the whole voluntary nature of church is such a, a struggle because you don't have to be here. And as soon as you're uncomfortable with something that you're struggling with, you can leave. And nobody can tell you you can't. And you can go struggle on your own. And what I think happens for a lot of people is that when that struggle becomes unbearable, you remember that there was something powerful in the connection that you had with the church people. I hope. We don't want to burn out on our own. So, Paul has this issue. Now, here's the thing. It's his particular personal issue, but it's just a general spiritual principle. Hard times, struggles, trials, pain, suffering, difficulties. They are God's way of keeping us humble. What is that? It means that we're, we're dependent on him. And, and I'm going to declare this. I, I think that this is an absolute truth. I've experienced it. I'm sure you have too. The closest I've been in my relationship with God has always been when I'm suffering and in pain and struggling and I can't figure it out on my own and I'm, I'm so in need of him. And as much as we hate the experience of that pain, we can appreciate the result of it. You, you've ever been there? Some of you are there now and as hateful as the pain of the situation may be, you can, if, I got to say it this way, if you will choose to draw close to the Lord in and through it, you will always look back on the pain of this situation as a blessing because it drew you close to the Lord in a way that you would never have come to him otherwise. You don't get there when everything is just going smooth and easy. Your faith grows and your faith matures when you have to. Lean on the Lord in such a way that you, your life is just not out of your control. Okay. We don't love that because <laughs> the issue is we don't love pain and suffering. And we shouldn't. We don't have to. Thankfully, here's one. I'll give you one encouraging thing. 
I know this is not all encouraging, but one encouraging thing. Very few people in the world ever suffered like Paul. Okay? Is that encouraging? Like, I, I don't know of too many stories where it's constant pain, suffering, persecution, beatings, imprisonments for your whole life for decades on end where it just never relents, okay? That, that's pretty unusual. We prob- most of us aren't going to go through that. So, but here's the other thing. I said uh, the reason why Paul says it, God brought it into my life uh, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, the other thing is um, how, okay, how did he have this perspective going into it? How did he, he have that heart that was willing to just say, okay, God, whatever you want, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, it, you find this in Galatians chapter 2. This is an early letter of Paul, okay? This is one of the first letters that he writes, and I think that it kind of gives us a, a formula or an understanding of how he understood life in serving the Lord. He says in chapter 2, verse 20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You ever heard that before? Have you ever heard it said this way? In order to become a Christian, you have to give your life to Christ. Here's a problem that we have in the American church in the 21st century, whether you're Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, whatever. We propose that Christianity is basically um, just something that you believe. Believe in Jesus. We don't talk enough about the reality of what it really means to become a Christian, which is that you have to give your life to Jesus. We say that, and we mean it, but we don't really explain it. Paul understood immediately, somehow, the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. He got it, that it was not his life anymore. He had given it to the Lord, and that meant that God was going to do whatever he wanted with it, and that was okay with him. Here's how we understand gift giving. Like, we give gifts a um, couple of different ways. Anybody ever uh, gone to the store, bought a picture frame, and then given it to somebody? Nobody. Something better than a picture frame? You know, you, you, you go, like, buy something. You don't have any attachment to that thing. You never consider that thing as your thing. You just go and you get it, and then you give it away, and it doesn't mean anything to you whatsoever, right? That's a big concept that we have for gift giving. We, we kind of just give gifts, and then we, we re-gift gifts. And that's always a little bit offensive, because if you gave that thing to me, you thought that you knew me, and I'd like that thing, and I didn't like that thing, and I think that you might like that thing, and you probably don't like that thing any more than I like that thing. But then you found out that you gave it to me, and I gave it to them, and now you're offended because you didn't know me as well as you thought you did. Okay. So here's the deal. When you give God your life, it's not like giving a thing like that to somebody. It's like your life is the most precious thing that you have. There's nothing more valuable that you have than your life. Can, you, can we all agree to that? And I know that we have family, we have kids, we have loved ones, we say they're more about, and that's true, but your, your life is the most precious thing that you can give. And so there are a couple ways to understand this. When I really do have an attachment to something, 
Okay, the first thing is this. Let's say, and, and I know we're, we're over time and I'm trying to wrap this up. I really am. But here's the deal. Let's say that you have $100,000 and some of you do have $100,000 and you could give that away. But let's just say for the average person, like accumulating $100,000 and having it in, in liquid form where you could give it to somebody, that'd be a, a, a decent accomplishment. But you have $100,000 and you're now going to give that to somebody. That'd be, that'd be a big gift, would it not? Okay, I'm going to give $100,000 to somebody, but now, see, I don't know if I really believe that it's theirs, and I really still think it's mine. So I'm going to give, it, I'm going to give you $100,000, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to put it in uh, a bond, okay? And you're going to get dividends from that bond every year, and let's say you're going to get 4% off of that $100,000. So you're going to get $4,000 a year from this, this gift that I'm giving you. And uh, that $4,000, I'd really like it if you took that $4,000 a year uh, that you're going to get from your dividends. I want you to pay off your car. I want you to pay off your credit cards. I want you to pay off your house over the years. Let's just take that money and use it to get debt-free. And then once you're debt-free, then really what I'd like you to do is put the, the remainder of that into a college fund for your kids. And, and here's how I'd like you to operate. And so I'm going to ask you, how are you doing with that? Did I give you that money? What I've done is... I have tried to control you with this money. This is what we call giving something with strings attached. I don't really trust you with this money. The money is still mine. I'm just putting it in your hands so I can control you with it. I'm telling you this. A lot of people give their life to God like that. Here, God, here's my life. I have this string attached to it. And I'm holding on to it pretty tightly. God, this is what I want you to do with my life. I really want you to make sure that I'm healthy, that my family's doing good, that my kids don't have any problems, that I, my job is secure, that my finances go good. I don't want any issues. Here, God, here's my life, but I really want to tell you what I'm, I want you to do with my life. And I have all these expectations for what I think God should be doing with my life. Did I give God my life? Or, or did I just kind of believe in, in God and hold on to my life. I'm trying to control God with my life. That's not how it works. It's not, it's not what he wants. Here's the deal. When you give that $100,000 to somebody, you say, Here, here's $100,000. I trust you to do with it what you think is best and what you think is right. Do with it what you will. No strings attached. When you give God your life, what, you, what you're doing is saying, God knows better than I do what to do with my life. And here's the, the issue that I think a lot of people are struggling with. They don't know if they can believe that God can be trusted with what is most precious to them. Can I really trust him to take my life and to do, do with it what is right and best? Let me say it this way. You don't have a clue what to do with your life. You don't have a clue. You're not running it very well. You and I are so limited. I don't, I don't, you don't know yourself very well. I, you feel feelings that you have no clue where they come from. Why do I feel this way? You ever ask yourself that? Why do I feel this way? Right now, 
we have this spiritual condition in our country, I think. Maybe it's the world. I don't know. Maybe it's just our community. I'm not sure. But there's a spiritual condition where a lot of people are feeling unsettled, a little despairing, a little depressed. They feel restless. You feel this way? Like, I, things are going okay. My job's okay. My family's okay. Every, my health is okay. But I still somehow, for some reason, I, am, I have no joy. I don't feel good. I don't feel like this is right. I don't know why I feel this way. I can't figure it out. I don't know what to do about it. Anybody? Three people. I'm telling you, I know it's a lot more than that. I don't know why I feel the way that I feel most of the time. Sometimes, yeah, you, you can figure it out. Most of the time you can't. You don't know yourself that well. God knows you better than you know yourself. I don't know the people around me that well. Even the people that I live with, I still don't know them, their heart, what's going on in their minds, why they make the decisions, what their motives are. I don't know people that well. God knows everybody better than you do. He knows the future. I have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. I have no idea what's going to happen next week. God has it all figured out. Who, who can you trust with your life? You or God? When you give God your life, you're saying, God, it's, it's not like a gift. It's like an investment. Okay? I'm investing this thing that really has very little value other than what God says it has. I'm going to give it to God. He's going to invest it. And I'm going to get a thousand percent return annually. How many would you like to get a thousand percent return annually on any investments that you have? Would you like that? God promises that you will, if you give him your life, inherit the kingdom of God. You give him this life that is mortal, that will end, and guess what you get? Eternal life. The thousand percent return is actually very, very conservative. Why are we holding on to it? Why do we think that we need to control it? Why do we think that we somehow have to grip our life by the throat and, and run it? Paul said, my life is God's. I don't know why I have to go through all these things. I, part of the reason is because I'm prideful. Part of the thing is he's going to get the best result possible out of this little thing called my life. So I'm going to give it to him. All right, let me conclude with what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You ever heard that? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us. Life is at work in you. Amen? Father, we love you. God, we thank you that you are able to take this life <laughs> that I couldn't run anyway and make it valuable, immeasurably valuable, you promise that 
it would be worth more than anything that we can imagine? Try to give us a small picture of it and how you described heaven where the streets, the least valuable thing in your kingdom, the very pavement is made from gold. This is our inheritance. It's just a picture, it's just a glimpse of the wealth that we have in Christ. And Lord, my prayer is that as we begin to understand that we can just trust you with our lives, that we would know that whatever we go through, and we're going to go through some difficulties we're guaranteed to, that, Lord, you're in, you're in control, and it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to get the result that you want. And part of that is that we got to intentionally just praise you and trust you in the midst of that. But God, we also are trying to share with the world the difference that it makes when we do trust you, that when we legitimately lay our lives down before Christ and say it's yours to do with as you wish, that the world sees a difference in us. It's not just a a belief, it's not just something we think differently, but our lives are not our own. We're crucified with Christ. And we don't live our own life. We live the life of Christ. We've got a lot to grow in every day. Lord, I remember Romans 12. We're living sacrifices. We, we get up and crawl off of that altar every day. Lord, help us to remember that we have to lay that life down every day give it to you again. Every morning we get up and we say, God, this is your life. Do with it as you will and I'll praise you. Father, thank you for the promises that you give us in Christ. We praise you for all that you are and do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That was long. I'm just going to ask you as we sing. uh, Here's what I am learning is that the world does not pressure you to have your mortality in mind. The world has you distracted with life, busy with life, trying to alleviate the fear of anything bad or death or anything else. When we come and worship, it's, it's our job to help every person to realize that this life is temporary. And part of that is, I'm going to live my life in view of eternity. I have to. Every day, understand that I'm going to be face-to-face with God. Amen? So we want to rush out of here and eat lunch, and I, I, want, I want to too, okay? But I want you to, to understand that we want to come face-to-face with the weight of what it means to know God, to really know Him. And if that means that today you need to come and just lay your life down at the altar, then we're going to invite you to do that. And even though it's getting late, I don't want to rush through it, but I do want to give you the opportunity to say, Lord, for whatever reason, I've held on to my life, but today I'm giving it to you. I'm really doing that. I'm laying it down. And I might have to do it again tomorrow, 
But today I'm saying, yes, please take my life. Let's stand and sing.